0: Well, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we are going to be in verses 13 through 18 today. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And the title of this sermon is Encouraging Eschatology. Encouraging Eschatology. I remember one particular time when I was a kid, uh, the church I grew up in, First Baptist Church of Gaiman, Oklahoma, would do these things called revivals, where the pastor would preach explicitly evangelistic sermons, zealously calling people to give their lives to Jesus. And while I've come to question some of the particular methodologies there, Uh, I still love the heart behind it. Uh, They wanted people to repent and believe in Christ. Anyway, one particular night at the revival, our pastor was preaching on the second coming of Christ. He powerfully explained about the sound of the trumpet and Jesus coming on the clouds. Well, right then, a train came through the tracks being a block from our own church building. And the train started blowing its horn. Some of you are laughing because you can imagine that situation. (laughs) Imagine being 10 or 11 years old, hearing a sermon about the end times when trumpets would sound, and then hear a train horn. Needless to say, all of us in the church that night were startled and looking around at each other. When it comes to eschatology, or the study of the end times, there's unfortunately a lot of confusion and fringe theology that tends to come into the picture. A lot of people read the newspaper, and then try to interpret the Bible in light of current events. One example of this guy is this guy named John Walvard, Uh, During the first Gulf War, he came out with a book in 1990 titled Armageddon, Oil in the Middle East Crisis. Here's the description of the book. Never before in history has there been such a chain of events signaling the approach of Armageddon, war in the Middle East, nuclear technology in the hands of rogue states, instability in oil markets, terrorist attacks on U.S. soil threats to wipe Israel off the map, and alliances between Russia and the Middle East nations. These troubling world events confirm the forecast made by Dr. John F. Walvoord, widely recognized as, quote, the father of modern biblical prophecy. His predictions once seemed beyond the realm of possibility, it says, until they begin to happen. John Walvoord correctly predicted Israel's establishment as a nation. He foresaw that the Iron Curtain would fall. He warned us that oil would make the Middle East the center of world conflict. That's the description of his book in 1990. James Grant, in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians, writes this about Walvoord's book. Grant says, as I looked into these claims, I discovered that this first book was first released in 1974, around 15 years before the first Gulf War. And 15 or more years after that event, the book was revised again in 2007 to reflect the current crisis in the Middle East and was republished as Armageddon, Oil, and Terror. Still others, like Harold Camping, read the Bible through the lens of the newspaper and try to guess the exact day of Jesus' return. Twice, by the way. My point is that a lot of times when it comes to eschatology, people lose sight of the text of Scripture itself. They get kind of crazy. Full transparency... When I was a young Christian, this was all a turnoff to me. I saw all of the crazy end time speculation, and I wanted nothing to do with it. I wrongly took the position that I know Jesus is coming back, and I really don't want to or need to know anything else. I don't need to study eschatology. While there's a bit of truth to that, I've come to see that while eschatology isn't a tier one doctrine, it's not unimportant. Yet, I will double down on the importance of Christ's return being central and other things, for example, the timing, order of events, etc., being secondary. Christ's return isn't a minor note in the symphony of scripture. One commentator writes this. This is amazing. He writes, Without question, the Bible teaches that Jesus is coming again. For instance, 23 out of the 27 books in the New Testament state that he is coming. One out of every 30 verses in the New Testament either speaks directly of his coming or of the end times surrounding his coming. For every biblical reference to Jesus' first coming, there are eight that point to his return. Clearly, the biblical writers did not want their readers to miss this truth. From the perspective of the biblical authors, Jesus' coming was never intended to be a subject for speculation. It was always intended to be a reason for anticipation and motivation. The next two weeks... We're going to be studying the second advent or the second coming of Christ, his glorious return. And so here's my encouragement to us. Number one, this is a big deal. It's vital to our hope as Christians, it gives us perseverance in times of trouble and even in times of persecution. So it's a big deal. Let's take this seriously and squeeze all of it out that we can. Second, let's strive to avoid speculation. Let's let the text be our guide more than the newspaper, or the latest End Times book series. So with all of that in mind, let's dive into our text. This is the word of the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Our two main points for today's text are these. Number one, looking back. And number two, looking forward. Number one, looking back. It's important for us to know some crucial background information as we begin to dissect this text. Remember, Paul came to Thessalonica. He taught them the gospel, briefly discipled them, and then fled for his life. Well, one of the truths that he taught them in this short period of time that he was there was that Jesus was coming back. Again, this speaks to how important this doctrine is. If you knew that you only had a short amount of time with a new Christian, what doctrines would you teach them? Paul apparently taught them about Christ's return. Then he's gone. The little church that could is left there, and they're rightly waiting for Jesus to come back. In the interim, some false teachers show up and begin teaching that Jesus has already come back. It seems they've even penned a letter to this little church, claiming to be from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We know this from 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-3. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-3, Paul writes to them, and he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or by a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Let no one deceive you in any way. Further, one or more of the church members actually died during this time period. So the situation is this. You've got these new Christians who are eagerly anticipating Jesus' return, they're wondering if they've missed it, and they're confused about their loved ones who have died. Will those loved ones miss out on the blessings, the joy, and the glory of the second coming? That's the context that Paul's writing to here. So, he writes verse 13. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. First, look at how Paul deals with confusion and grief, with doctrine. He doesn't say, well, these Christians are confused, but I don't really want to be dogmatic, or... I have my perspective, and they have theirs. Or doctrines just for academics. He doesn't say, I know that they've experienced some deaths, so I'm just going to shy away from the doctrine stuff for a while and just send my sympathies. No, he says, we do not want you to be uninformed. He's about to inform them with doctrine with eschatology specifically. Why? To make sure that they've got all of their end times charts filled out correctly? No. This is primarily pastoral in nature. They're grieving. And Paul sees that in the midst of grief, being uninformed or or being doctrinally confused leads to people grieving like pagans. You see what Paul writes here. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Sleep is a biblical euphemism for death, by the way. We'll come back to this again in a second. But then he says, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Pagans grieve with no hope. Many of the commentators cite a letter written around the time of the New Testament by this Greek woman who's offering her her condolences to her friends who have just lost a loved one. Her name was was Irene. She's a, a pagan. And she writes this. So her friends have just lost loved ones, and this is what she writes to them. Against such things, one can do nothing. Therefore, comfort one another. If you lost a loved one, and I sent you a card that said that, how would you feel? You can't really do anything about death. Comfort each other. Good luck. That's not the stuff of Hallmark cards. For pagans, there's no hope in the midst of grief. And I want us to understand this clearly. Paul's not saying that as Christians we shouldn't grieve. Not at all. When Lazarus died in John 11, Jesus wept. In Romans 12, 15, Paul tells us as Christians to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. It's perfectly normal and even honorable to grieve as a Christian. Let's just think of this through the lens of something inanimate. If I lose a number two pencil, there's really not any grief. Why? Because it doesn't mean that much to me. There's not that much value. But when you lose someone to death, you grieve. Why? Because they're a gift of God to you. They were a valuable piece of your life or of your community. Grief shows gratitude to God, who gave the person to you as a gift in your life. Grief actually honors their memory. It's okay to grieve as Christians, but we don't grieve like pagans who have no hope. We grieve like Christians who have hope, What is that hope? Back to our word, asleep. How many of you slept last night? I hope most of you. How many of you woke up this morning? I hope all of you. This is why sleep is a Christian euphemism for death. We have hope as Christians that we'll wake up again on the other side of the grave. We have hope of life after death. And we've discussed this before. Christian hope isn't just wishful thinking. It's settled assurance. Settled assurance. It's not, I hope this happens, but I'm really not sure. No. Settled assurance. Hebrews 11.1. 1. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Christian hope is settled assurance. Now, why do Christians have hope or settled assurance of life after death? Look what Paul does here. He reminds them of what they believe. What they know. He looks back. Look at verse 14. He says, For since we believe That Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Do you see that? They're confused about loved ones who have died. They're grieving. And Paul gives them core foundational Christian doctrine. Number one, Jesus died. Number two... Jesus rose again. He gives them the Easter sermon. I love this. Christians, the Easter sermon isn't just for Easter. It's always what the doctor ordered. I, I need the Easter sermon preached to me every single day. Drew, are you stressed out by X, Y, and Z? Yeah. Yeah. Jesus died and rose again. It's going to be okay. Did you just get sinfully angry at someone? Jesus died and rose again. You're forgiven. Do you see what Paul is doing here? He's saying, Jesus died. He died a physical death, just like your loved ones in Christ. He rose again. And if your loved ones are in Christ... They will too. There's Christian hope of life after death, not because of speculation. Not because of anything outside of the Bible. But because of the certainty of Jesus' life after death. Our union with Christ has everything to do with this. When we repent of our sin and believe in Jesus Christ... Each of us are declared to be in Christ, unified with him. So because he rose from the grave bodily, we will too. That's the core truth that Paul's comforting them with. Good doctrine is so practical, friends. The gospel is fantastic news at the moment of conversion knowing that you get to spend eternity with Christ in heaven instead of eternal hell, which we all deserve. The gospel is fantastic news at that moment. And the gospel is fantastic news in the normal rhythm of life, like when you lose a loved one in Christ and you're grieving. Jesus rose bodily, and your loved one will too. Paul writes, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Again, Paul uses this language of fallen asleep. I think it'd be appropriate to address this issue here. Some believe in a concept called soul sleep, or the belief that when you physically die here on earth, that you enter an unconscious state until the return of Christ, at which time you'll wake up and be physically resurrected with your body. As my friend Mark Dever would say, that's great if you believe that. Meanwhile, in the Bible, the Bible's clear on this. When you die... You won't experience an unconscious soul sleep. You'll be conscious immediately, whether in heaven if you're a Christian or in hell if you're not. Luke chapter 16. Jesus tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man who dies and is buried is in Hades, in hell. He's clearly conscious immediately. In Philippians 1, verses 21 through 23, Paul writes this. He says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Verse 23. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. In Revelation chapter 4. The Apostle John gets to see a vision of what's going on in heaven. What does he see? He sees people around the throne worshiping Christ. This isn't a future vision, it's real time. What was and is going on right now at this very moment. What does Paul write in 2 Corinthians 5 6 through 8? He says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Away from the body is to be what? At home with the Lord. Not unconscious soul sleep. The thief on the cross, what does Jesus say to him? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Sidebar over. Okay, so the the pressing question here was, what happens to our friends who have died before the second coming? Since they've already gone to be with the Lord will they miss out on one of the most glorious moments in history? If I die before Christ's return, will I miss out on that moment? I mean, it's going to be epic. And this is where Paul shifts from looking back to looking forward. Point two, looking forward. Look at what Paul says in verse 15. He says, For this we declare to you, By a word from the Lord. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. He's saying again, this isn't speculation or conjecture or just my opinion. We're declaring to to you this by the word from the Lord. He's saying this is an authoritative truth. Those who have died who are in Christ won't miss out on this amazing moment they get to go to the front of the line and what's this moment going to be like look at verse 16 for the lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of god and the dead in christ will rise first remember The false teachers wrote a letter to this church telling them that they had already missed it. Paul's saying, you won't be able to miss it. It's going to be visible and audible. First, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. I want to remind us of Acts chapter 1, when Jesus' disciples had some eschatology questions of their own. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Do you see that? Jesus, we believe that you're the king and the Messiah. Are you going to restore the kingdom right now? It's not for you to know. But I'll send you the Holy Spirit, who's going to empower you to spread the good news all over the place. Jesus ascends to heaven to take his place at the right hand of the Father in glory. Wouldn't you have loved to be there to experience that moment? Well, look at what happens next, verses 10 and 11. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went... Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming back in the same way, on the clouds. What's that about? Well, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 Daniel seven thirteen and 14, it reads, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Amazing vision of the Son of Man coming in authority, being given dominion. Jesus connects this amazing vision from Daniel 7 to himself in Matthew chapter 24, verses 30 through 31. Jesus says this He says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Speaking of Daniel 7 the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. When Christ descends from heaven, it's going to be electric unlike anything you've ever experienced before in your life. There's going to be a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. And it won't be puny like the train horn I heard as a child. It'll be global, unmistakable, majestic, and kingly. Because the king is coming to reign and rule forever. The dead in Christ, those who were asleep, will rise first. They will experience bodily resurrection to be reunited with their souls. Then, verse 17, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So, those who are still alive when Christ comes, after the bodily resurrection of the dead, will be caught up. It's a word that means snatched, taken away, seized. It's going to be sudden and immediate. This group, the text tells us, will be taken away together with them. Who's them? The dead in Christ. To do what? To meet the Lord in the air. To meet the Lord in the air. This is where the text gets fun. This word, to meet, it's the word apontesis. It appears in the New Testament two other times. The first one, Matthew chapter 25, verses 6 through 10. Matthew 25, 6 through 10. It says, but at midnight there was a cry. So this is a parable of Jesus. At midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Do you see that? The bridegroom is coming. The virgins who were prepared went out to meet him. There's our word. Then they return with him into the marriage feast. Acts chapter 28. Verses 14 through 16 is the other place that this word meet appears. Acts 28, 14 through 16 it says, there we found the brothers and we were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. So this is Paul speaking here. And so we came to Rome and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Apius in the three taverns to meet us. Same word. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. In other words, these brothers heard that Paul was coming to Rome. What did they do? They go out of the city to meet him and usher him back into Rome. Understand this. In the ancient world, when a dignitary or a king came to a city, along with the fanfare of trumpets, the leaders of the city would go out of the city to meet them. Then they would escort the king back into the city. You see what's happening in our passage? This isn't just a family reunion in the sky. It's all of God's people meeting him outside the city to usher the king back in to judge the world. All of God's people, past and present, will be his entourage in that glorious moment. And look at this amazing promise at the end of verse 17. And so we will always be with the Lord. There will never be another moment from that point on that you ever feel distant from the Lord. Do you understand how comforting this is? There will be a day when we will always be with the Lord. If that doesn't give you hope as a Christian, I don't know what will. That day is going to be unbelievable. And look at how Paul finishes this paragraph. This is key to understanding this whole sermon. Look at verse 18. He says, Therefore, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Can I just tell you that within the study of eschatology... A lot of times we're asking questions that the Bible never intended to answer. Paul's purpose in writing what he writes here isn't to satisfy all of our end times questions. It's not to make our end times charts crystal clear. His purpose in writing is pastoral. It's to encourage them and then for them to encourage one another with these words. If your eschatology isn't encouraging, you're doing it wrong. If you have loved ones in Christ who have died, you can grieve like a Christian, with hope, because Jesus died, and because he rose again. You can be encouraged that one day, Jesus will come again. Whether you're dead by then or still alive, you get to join him in that moment. To welcome him back to earth as redeemer and king. If you're a Christian, you can be assured of this. And if you're not a Christian, I just want to speak very directly to you in this moment. When that day comes... The moment described in this text, when that day comes, there will be no more time to decide. You'll either be with Christ in his entourage and then be with him forever in heaven, or you'll be justly judged, experiencing the wrath of God forever in hell. I'm not telling you this because I'm a a judgmental Christian who thinks you're a horrible person. I'm telling you this because I love you. And I don't want you to experience the fire of eternal hell. Jesus can come back at any moment. He'll come back like a thief in the night. Without warning. On that day, you won't be able to decide. But on this day, today, you can. Jesus came and died for sinners. He went to the cross and took the penalty that we all deserve. He died as our perfect substitute. He was buried in the grave. He rose from that grave three days later, defeating sin, Satan, and death itself. And if you repent and believe in him, you will be saved. So receive that invitation. This glorious king summons you today to follow him, to give your life to him. The first time he came, he came as a sacrificial lamb. But the second time he comes, it'll be as a warrior king. So will you follow him? This day, if you'd like to, I'd love nothing more than to talk to you after the service today. I'm begging you and pleading you this day to turn and to follow Christ. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring. Then anew, his song will sing, hallelujah, What a Savior. Let's pray.